Green Green Left Weekly Weekly Radio. Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning and welcome to Green Left Radio. Today is Friday the 19th of November and you're listening to 3CR. 3CR and Green Left Radio is broadcast from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past and present, acknowledge that this land was never ceded and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, good morning once again. We've got Leo and Sue in the studio as well as Chloe um, the and background Gab. and Gav as well. Um, and for today's program, we've got lots of cool interviews lined up. We're talking to Tom Tanuki a little bit later. Um, but before that, uh, we've got discussion of news items, um, what's in the news currently, as well as a pre-recorded interview um, of a talk by John Molyneux. Um, but let's get started. So if you want to kick us off with some of the news. Um, Hi, how's so it going, everybody? Um, yeah, I just wanted to start by talking a little bit about some of the industrial disputes that are happening in Melbourne because uh, not all of them have received media attention and it's actually really good that um, at this uh, present moment where the profit share of the national income is the highest it ever has been in Australian history and the wages share of national income is the lowest in Australian history. So it is really important to start to see unions coming out of all of the various lockdowns and starting to take industrial action. And um, and a, cer- a number of unions, I won't be able to talk about all of the unions engaged in action, um, but some of the unions I'm aware of have been taking action recent times, uh, the United Workers Union, Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, um, the Australian Services Union and the Maritime Union of Australia. And I'm, I'm sure there would be other unions taking action, but one um, action which has been, which was one, is the Toll Kmart Warehouse Workers Action, where they took strike action in five sites across uh, Victoria, one site in South Australia and one in New South Wales. They had a two-day strike this week, um, and they won. And in particular, as well as winning a 3% increase pay increase each year for three years, they also won more than 100 jobs. Um, permanent jobs and that's a feature of a number of union campaigns these days is win um, demands to convert casual jobs into permanent jobs um, they've also won um, increased redundancy and a guarantee that if workers are forced to move to a new toll distribution center their wages and redundancy provisions will be maintained but the other thing with this is that some of these workers who've worked for um, 
Kmart for a long time, Kmart Warehouse for a long time, uh, one woman who was interviewed in um, the media said that she had worked directly for the Kmart um, Warehouse for $32.65 an hour in 2010, but then Kmart outsourced its warehouse operations to toll, which saw workers re-employed on only $17 an hour, way less than they'd been earning um, when it was a Kmart warehouse. So this is a tactic of the companies. Now, the workers haven't won back all of that loss of wages, but they've won back some of that. Um, I think you were going to maybe thinking about the Geelong um, library workers been following that case? I haven't been following it too closely, but um, I think all the sort of various strikes you've enumerated, Sue, is part of a bit of a trend, I think, that we've seen um, in industrial action, not just in Australia, but um, worldwide. Um, John Deere workers recently um, concluded their major sort of strike action in, in the US and basically doubled their pay. So I think it is interesting to notice um, you know, while these victories are obviously sort of very limited in the grand scheme of things, um, that um, these industrial actions are um, becoming more and more frequent, even in the sort of limited um, framework of Australia's Fair Work Act. Have you sort of noticed that? Oh, yes, I think it is. Um, it is really important. And like in the AMW, they've got a range of disputes going on at the moment, um, the latest group is um, this is mostly the metal work um, metal workers part of the union. Ramsett Reed workers have just voted to take industrial action. They've won the first ever union agreement um, at Inver Engineering. Um, they've also um, had a vote on protected action at Ruag, and um, the Cadbury workers um, in the northern part of Melbourne. Um, they had strike action about a month or so ago. Um, they're still campaigning. They haven't won yet. They're still campaigning. And another um, group of workers which is um, campaigning solidly are the country road workers. Um, they're in a warehouse at Triganina, um, and they've been campaigning for a wage increase um, Country Road is a fashion fashion group. Um, they produce, um, uh, create brands or, or um, distribute for brands such as Mimco, Witchery and Politics, and they've basically refused even a $1 an hour pay rise for the workers. This is a group of women workers. They're paid $10 an hour less than male warehouse workers in the same area. Um, this company got $25 million in handouts, corporate handouts, um, from the federal government um, under jo- the JobKeeper scheme, where we know m- these big businesses ripped off ripped off the Australian public blind um, by getting masses of money from the government. Um, and then um, they made something like $200 million profit last year, um, last financial year. But so the workers have been not only on strike this week since the 11th of no- November, but they've been um, uh, carrying out protests outside Country Road stores. They also held an event during Melbourne Fashion Week because Country Road tries to pretend it's an ethical employer, <laughs> despite treating these women 
like crap. So it's um, this is a really important struggle, and there is a um, they're raising money for the strike fund, and you can access that if you look on the United Workers Union Facebook page or website. There's also a petition you can sign in support. Um, it's also worth bombing the country road. Um, worth bombing the country road. Um, you know, Facebook, et cetera, with messages of support for the workers. Um, but, yeah, this is really important dispute going on right at the moment. Mm. And I think you've touched on most of the disputes um, there, Sue, and we'll um, mention a little bit later in the program um, about insecure jobs in general and the ACTU's um, sort of reorientation to focusing um, on job security and um, how that's been increasingly an issue um, for unions. Uh, but moving on with um, some of the news items, and once again, we'll touch on um, the latest developments in the sort of um, some of the protests we've seen um, in front of Parliament, pretty close to where we are broadcasting from today, um, about the sort of uh, pandemic uh, management bill that's been before the Victorian Parliament um, for a while. And one of the latest developments... Um, that's sort of transpired there is Scott Morrison yesterday attacking the Victorian government and sort of stating that um, unlike the Victorian government, the federal government um, doesn't, um, you know, get involved with people's lives as much and that, you know, um, in the in the face of all these COVID lockdowns, we should have less government um, involvement in people's lives. Now, um, my take on this, um, and it might be slightly different to your Sue, but on the one hand, there is the sort of obvious hypocrisy. The federal government is very much involved in a lot of people's lives, um, detrimentally so, whether that's uh, locking up refugees overseas, um, whether it's continuing to um, you know, uh, fund climate criminals that are um, threatening our future, whether it's uh, restricting um, women's rights. Um, they're very much um, involved in people's day-to-day lives, um, but... On this specific issue, um, I think it is interesting, and my sort of point of analysis is that Scott Morrison is really trying to see how much he can get away with to pander to some of the um, far-right protesters and anti-lockdown protesters more broadly um, and instigate a culture war because I think that is the ultimate sort of end game here for not just the federal government but maybe this movement in general, seeing um, the best way to reframe this into a culture war. And I think some of the tactics um, by the state government, which have been, you know, we have to say authoritarian and police-based during the pandemic, have only sort of contributed to this and haven't really helped. Um, But, yeah, what are your views on Scott Morrison's comments, Sue? Well, I think what Morrison's trying to do is a a Trump-type scenario of saying, I'm with you, I'm sort of oh, yes, yes, maybe some of the the gallows might be a little bit too far, but I'm actually with you. And he said, we don't, he said, we, as in the federal government, doesn't tell people what they can do, unlike state governments telling people what they can do. So So I understand why you're protesting. Now, this is um, very much like Trump. I'm with you, um, with you carrying out all of these racist attacks and all the rest of it, but, you know, 
I'm sort of slightly not with you mm-hmm. so that I can um, justify my case in, in, in terms of the mainstream media. Um, but it's also, it's totally uh, hypocritical, as you say, because actually the federal government is very much about telling people what they can do. The federal government ties, well, actually what they do is they're totally happy to let companies um, butcher their way through the community through producing, continuing to produce fossil fuel and all the rest of it. They don't want to have any targets around the climate. But meanwhile, they've got tied workers and unions up in knots with laws designed to prevent workers from taking any action in defence of their rights. So they very much actually do tell workers what to do, even if you're a worker who's not in a union or not really ever taken action before, as soon as you feel confident enough to take action in defence of your rights, you suddenly discover that in terms of the law, you don't have any rights or very few rights as a worker. And often, if you want to take industrial action to defend your rights as a, as a workplace, you actually have to go against the industrial relations laws and break those laws. And then if you look at um, people on welfare, anyone who's unlucky enough to be unemployed or sickness benefits or some form of welfare, a huge number of people have been thrown onto the basics card, which means you're not allowed to buy a whole lot of things. And so sometimes by by the time people have um, used up the money they've received um, in their bank account, they've got no money to buy petrol with and they live in a remote area where you need vehicles which survive on petrol to get around. And, you know, the basics card is designed to keep people lining up at a, at a single um, single counter in, in large department stores or large supermarkets. It stops people going from the smaller shop to the smaller shops. It very much determines um, what people can buy, and often people can't buy Christmas presents on the basics card, Christmas presents for their grandchildren or children. Um, and there are many more things where they, the government is very much about dictating what you're going to do, um, including people who are at the protests uh, against the Victorian government, um, like the um, right-wing protests. Um, Those people are also affected by the government telling people that they're not allowed, not allowed to go on strike. Um, So this is, you know, totally outrageous hypocrisy, as, as we know, and it actually needs to be called out, and not just in regard to COVID restrictions, in regard to daily life. Mm. Yeah, and I agree with you there. And I think the examples that you just cited there about the industrial action and the welfare system especially um, highlight this hypocrisy. And I think there is a tendency for uh, capitalist governments in you know sort of liberal democratic states um, – portraying themselves as, you know, these beacons of freedom, whereas actually um, they're quite authoritarian and they're not authoritarian in the sort of classic sense that um, uh, there's necessarily surveillance or extreme police repression, although that's certainly present as well, but it's, it's, it's hidden away from the public eye and, you know, 
we know all the hoops that unemployed people, people on welfare benefits have to jump through um, to qualify for them. And even when they do, there are so, so many restrictions. The bureaucracy um, just clogs up um, any sort of um, rights that people have in that system. And the same goes for industrial action, as you mentioned as well. I mean, the Fair Work Act is so restrictive when it comes to protected industrial action. Um, once again, you have so many hoops to jump through, um, very specific conditions where you can take protected industrial action. There has to be, you know, so many votes. And even when you do take it, it's very much limited and, you know, we, you can't be um, beyond the reach um, of what's permitted. So... Um, it is very hypocritical for Scott Morrison to make those comments. And I resonate also with the way you sort of compared him to Donald Trump. It's very much a sort of case of stand back and stand by, as he mentioned, um, in regard to the Proud Boys. And I think that is a tactic we're increasingly going to be seeing with um, uh, these sort of right-wing protests. And that's something we can talk to Tom Tanuka about a little bit later. I think there are a lot of similarities between this sort of latest protest movement and maybe we have to figure out a better way to call it. That's something we could discuss with Tom, but this sort of movement um, that's happening in Victoria and across Australia and the attacks that happened um, at the Capitol building on the 6th of January January earlier this year, um, I think there's a lot of potential for diverse sort of groups to come together under the leadership of far right and for sort of mainstream right-wing politicians to see how much they can get away with it. And um, in Trump's case, I sort of feel it maybe got slightly out of his control and um, we saw chaos. So how that unfolds in the Australian situation um, would definitely be interesting and whether a, a trigger point such as an election could um, trigger something more. Um, but that's definitely something we'll discuss more with Tom Tanuki, who is an expert on um, you know, anti-fascist commentary and has been quite prominently involved in it. Um, but Sue, do you have any other comments on any news items before we move to our next segment? Well, which I is... just wanted to mention one, Leo, mm-hmm. and maybe it's something which we could um, cover in the next issue, next um, Green Left Radio program. We don't have time to go into it greatly today, but there's been a really worrying step up of violence against the family of Veronica Komen. Now, for people who don't know her, Veronica Komen is um, a human rights activist from Indonesia, a lawyer who has very much taken up the cause of the people of West Papua. And West Papua is occupied by Indonesian troops. And her family, she's in exile in Australia. She was under threat of her life. She was forced to flee to Australia. Her family has received a lot of threats in recent times. But in, but over the last month, um, her family has had two bombs, um, th- or three packages arrive at the house, but actually two sort of bombings or fire bombs outside the house. And this um, is quite scary. Like, so... Um, you know, the Indonesian state is attacking not only Veronica, but her family as well. Um, and it coincides with an uh, increase in um, in fighting in West Papua. And the West Papuans are fighting for their lives, fighting for the right to self-determination. 
but we don't have time to go into it today and maybe at the next program we can go into this in a little bit more detail because Australia has consistently supported Indonesian occupation. That's right, yeah. And I think we have run out of time for this first sort of uh, news article program. Uh, My next one, next item is um, a recording of John Molyneux, a speech that he gave at the latest sort of public forum that we ran. Sue, if you want to introduce him and what the thing is about. Introduce um, John Molyneux. And for people who've just joined us, you're listening to 3CR at 8.55 on the dial uh, and Green Left Radio um, is the the program you're listening to. Um, Our next speaker is John Molyneux. John is the convener of the Global Eco-Socialist Network and he is a long-term socialist activist um, in Ireland. Um, John spoke at a public meeting on Wednesday night, um, COP26, uh, a left response, um, and it was his analysis about uh, the outcome of the um, COP26 conference that we've just had and the greenwashing exercise that we saw on display there. Um, So we'll just load up this interview. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jacob. And it's really great uh, to be here um, and able to speak to you. Uh, Good evening to you all. It's good, very, in a sense, very much good morning from me early morning in uh in Ireland um uh, following your custom of saying speak, that you're speaking from unceded land I think I should say I'm speaking from uh what was Britain's oldest uh and longest colony uh and now no longer a a British colony but now a, a tax haven for the multinational corporations um progress of a kind maybe um okay uh and uh as I say, it's very, very good to see you all. It's a, uh, I suppose, the only one of the very few co- compensations of living in the pandemic is that we actually, through Zoom, talk to each other internationally much more. So that, 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 that's great. Um, I want to I'll start, obviously, with the abject failure of COP26, even in its own terms. Um, I expected to be honest with you, that uh, COP would at least engage in some serious greenwashing and that in the aftermath of COP, one of the key tasks of the left would be to show how, um, you know, what they claimed uh, and what they were actually doing were quite different, that that we would have to engage in a forensic dissection of what had come out of COP and look at the small print and so on. Actually, I don't think in the present circumstances that's even really necessary. Um, uh, uh, Jacob quoted uh, uh, Greta Thunberg denouncing the conference while it was going on as blah, 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 which was, I think, very effective and very useful. We certainly made use of that on our demonstrations and so on in Ireland. Uh, but after the conference, she said they'd managed to even water down the blah, blah, blah. And that was quite an achievement. Um, uh, George Monbiot, the well-known environmental, I don't know if he's well-known in Australia, but he's well, well-known in Northwestern Europe. George Monbiot described as a suicide pact. And for us in Ireland, that's most telling 
was the statement by Mary Robinson. Mary Robinson is the former president of Ireland. She was the first woman president of Ireland. She then went on to be the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the UN Special Envoy on Climate Change and so on. She's a big noise establishment figure. And she said, she described COP26 as a shameful dereliction of duty um, on the part of our leaders, etc. I wouldn't quite put it like that, but uh, uh, given that the, the, these people are making this, it, 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 you can gather that it was a total disaster. Um, the only kind of claim that it makes is that it's the first to explicitly plan to reduce coal. Now, that tells you something. They've had 26 COP conferences, and this is the first time they have even talked about reducing coal. And they've only talked about that. And remember, that was watered down, um, particularly uh, through China and India. Uh, and so no doubt Australia played uh, its own part in that. And so there's nothing definite there. They're just vaguely going to phase it down. Uh, they're pressing for more urgent measures, but that means nothing. They've been pressing for more urgent measures since 1992. There's no concrete commitments. The pledges that they are making um, are not enough to limit uh, the warming of the planet to 1.5 um, uh, degrees Celsius. There was, um, even if the pledges were implemented, they're still on course for more than two degrees. And of course, there to say there is no guarantee the pledges will be uh, implemented is too weak. I mean, it's almost certain that they won't be because none of their other pledges have been. Uh, 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 implemented and perhaps most telling of all their declaration made no mention of the fossil uh, fuel industry but given that the single group organizational body that had the most number of delegates more than any individual country at the COP conference was the fossil fuel industry with over 500 delegates this is hardly surprising okay that that's so I think we can say, you know, somebody put in the chat, cop out 26. Yes, a complete, a, 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 a complete cop out, a complete disaster. The key question, therefore, I think for the left, we have to, to address is why. Why was um, cop such a failure? And here, there are, I think, several arguments are quite important. It's tempting to see it, and the, a lot of the media puts it in this way, and some of the sometimes they put Greta Thunberg's statements in this way, and so on. See, it's a generational issue. It's the old versus the young. I don't buy that one, partly because I'm 73, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I don't. I don't think that's the fundamental thing. I, I think there may be a difference in generational response to some extent, but that's not the root of the problem. It's certainly not ignorance. Our rulers have known for decades. The first Earth Summit was in 1992, by the way. So it's it, it, it's not ignorance. Is it just not caring? Well, in a sense, you could say it's not caring, but why don't they care? And what actually are they doing? Sometimes people say to me, uh, yeah, but don't they realise their children, their futures, you know, are, are going to be destroyed? I think probably in their heads, what they're doing is saying we're going to gamble on technological advance, you know, a sort of Elon Musk response. 
But that tells you something. That means they are willing to gamble the entire future of humanity on technology that still doesn't exist and that they can't be certain will exist. They'll put the whole future of humanity at risk for that. Um, just as in um, 1914, for example, they put uh, 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 the world's workers more than at risk. They sacrificed the millions upon millions of the world's working people for, for, for war. Now they'll gamble uh, our whole future. And we have to name the problem. The problem, the problem I think, quite clearly, is the commitment of all our rulers, uh, or virtually all our rulers, to capitalism, uh, to the capitalist economic system. And capitalism, by its very essence, uh, subordinates people, the environment, and um, the planet to profit. Uh, under capitalism, the tyranny of profit is, in the last analysis, absolute. Right. Um, we need to explain to people, I think, why this is. It's sometimes thought that capitalism is just about personal greed. It is not. It's much more than that. Um, it is the fact that each capitalist unit uh, is engaged week by week, month by month, year by year, in a competitive struggle, a struggle waged in terms of profits uh, with its rivals, a struggle to accumulate capital. Uh, and that is of its very nature. That struggle goes on um, at the level of the two uh, pharmacists down my road who are busy competing with one another. It goes on at the level of Woolworths and Coles in Australia. It goes on at the level of Microsoft and Dell, of ExxonMobil, BP and Shell. They are all fighting with their rivals for their share of the market, their share of production, and trying to produce more to achieve more and more profit. And crucially, and this is very important, we need to understand as well, that this is, goes on at the level of states. Uh, it is not just something restricted to the corporations with the states uh, 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 and the state apparatuses and the governments outside of this process. They're engaged in it as well. And you see that in terms of USA versus China versus the EU versus Russia and India, uh, 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 Australia and so on. They are all uh, uh, busily engaged in, in trying to ensure that USSA, USA Limited uh, is keeping up with or maintaining its dominant position vis-a-vis -vis China uh, Limited and so on. Uh, so they are all uh, caught up in this. And once we uh, understand this clearly, uh, then we can see there is not actually going to be a capitalist solution to the problem of climate change. The slogan um, that uh, system change, not climate change, uh, is literally true. That is what we need. We need a change to eco-socialism, the only real alternative to capitalism. Now, um, when uh, we speak, therefore, about a left response to COP's failure, we should be speaking, I think, of an eco-socialist response. A, a response geared to uh, assembling the forces that can bring about such climate change, such system change. 
that means we need to be organizing to take the power out of the hands of the Bezos and Musks, the billionaires, the corporations and the politicians that represent them. Now, uh, here, I don't just mean pressurize the government and corporations. Um, I I don't mean we shouldn't pressurize them. We were right to or try to pressurize them. We were right uh, to mobilize over COP as we saw in Glasgow and many other places, because that put brought millions or hundreds of thousands of people into action. And that was that was essential. We need to build a mass movement. It's part of the process of building a mass movement to overthrow the system. But ultimately, our, gay, our goal is not just, I think, the hope that we can pressurize them into action. It has to be to go beyond that, uh, to take power out of their hands. Now, I want to say just a little bit about the tactics in this specific situation. Obviously, these tactics will vary from country to country, and I don't know the situation well enough in Australia to say anything that's meant to be suggesting, uh, you know, what you should do or anything like that, uh, or, or in, in many places. That depends on the local situation, and it's very, very important that um, tactics are geared to specific situations. But I do think some general comments can be made. <clears throat> the first of these I want to make is that I think there is a pressure because of the question of time deadlines that people feel uh, and a certain desperation, uh, and I'll come back to that, but there is a pressure um, towards what I would call substitutionism. By substitutionism, I mean the idea that what's important is not a mass movement, but the heroic self-sacrificing actions of individuals. You know, there's a long tradition of this in, in environmentalism. I mean, in a sense, Greenpeace was built on this. You know, a few people would sail out into the seas or a few people uh, or would scale buildings and so on. They had to be highly trained. There was no, you know, it was a, a belief in action by a tiny minority of a, uh, elite, dedicated people. And this will be there as well. It's a pressure that exists within Extinction Rebellion. The founder of Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hallam, who people may or may not know uh, here, uh, has very much gone in that direction. Uh, and even a, a well-known writer like Andreas Malm, who's made major contributions to eco-socialist thinking, um, is talking in those terms in his book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Now, uh, I, I don't think we should go in that direction. Um, I think that um, that direction is, uh, uh, we have to be a bit careful here because, of course, some small actions by people will help build the movement. Uh, but we have to avoid actions that exclude people or, or a strategy which excludes people because mass mobilization is essential, both as the most effective way of pressurizing our particular government and as a way of preparing for, for future uh, for future change. So I, I, uh, I don't want to be absolutist about this question of tactics, but I think strategically we have to retain a focus on the mass movement and we have to see ourselves as reaching out um, to working class people, to the mass of, of the, the population in our respective uh, countries. Uh, in this, I think the question of climate justice uh, and of a just transition is vital. We should oppose uh, carbon taxes and other measures that try to put the burden on working class people. Uh, and we should support, I think, demands that 
actually relate to the mass of people and they make life better for them. We shouldn't engage, I think, in the, 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 the general ruling class rhetoric that we all have to tighten our belts and sacrifice, by which they mean working class people have to tighten their belts and sacrifice, and they won't. Um, so we should campaign for things like, uh, I think, well, free public transport, retrofitting uh, of homes and so on. Thing, things that it, uh, uh, um, actually, as I say, make life better for, for working class people, a better uh, life. Um, I was in a big conference on um, Sunday, at which a question was raised, should we be dropping everything else and just focusing on climate change? It's an interesting question, because, of course, it is the overarching issue and the most urgent issue ultimately facing humanity. Um, but I would say my answer to that would be no, we shouldn't. I think, the, um, again, depending on where you are, a multitude of issues that are important and are important that we continue to be active on in order to have a chance of stopping climate change and changing the system. So questions like, uh, housing crisis and homelessness, racism, workers' struggles, land rights, women's rights, those sort of questions, multitude of them. I think we do have to be active uh, on all, all of those as well, because in that way we can draw people into an understanding also of the climate crisis and the need to um, challenge the system. Um, I would argue something like this, that we should try and embed commitment to climate justice in all the different movements and struggles. Um, I'll give it just an, an analogy here. Um, when we set up the global uh, eco-socialist network that uh, myself and, uh, uh, and Su your member Susan Price here uh, have been very much involved with, and, uh, uh, when, when we set this up, we put in our founding principles that we were against Racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and all forms of national oppression. Because we were going to campaign on all those things all the time? No. We are primarily focused on environmental questions and so on. Uh, but because we considered that you couldn't actually have an, a left progressive movement in the present day that wasn't anti-racist, anti-sexist, etc. You'd just immediately fracture and break and so you can't build a movement that isn't committed to those, those principles. I think we also want a situation, we want to move towards the situation where every progressive movement, every struggle also sees its place within fighting for um, uh, uh, climate justice. Now, um, within that movement, I think we need to, when I'm coming to a conclusion here, I think we need to make the case for system change and we need to say that means revolution uh, of course lots of people say system change and they mean different things by it they mean that we need to change the system because we'll get our, our rulers to change their mindset um, in, in Ireland the Green Party believed this and that's what they would always say we need a mindset in the new economic model and on that basis they went into government believing they could convert the uh, conservative capitalist parties to a new mindset of course this didn't happen all that happened was they became uh, complicit in running capitalism um so i don't mean that i mean uh, we need an actual social revolution a revolution from below by the mass of people uh now there is an important argument against this i just want to say something about that which always comes up but there's no time for that 
We need change now. We can't wait for this revolution. Now, I'm not, of course, proposing that we that we wait for the revolution. We fight on everything right now. But I've heard this argument that we can't wait for your revolution for 20 years in the movement now. And I say we can't wait for capitalism to go green either. Um, and I would also argue that it is not true that the process of greening capitalism is a quicker process than the process of revolution. In fact, we'll wait forever if we wait for capitalism to go green. And you have to remember that if revolutions do break out, they can spread like wildfire. And look at what happened with the Arab Spring. And I think if you had a, 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 a social revolution, an eco-socialist revolution now, the inspiration would enable it to spread uh, very, very rapidly. Two final points, and then I will conclude. Um, the first is about politics and political parties. Uh, again, I don't know the situation in Australia, but in much of the movement where I am, and in Britain and elsewhere, there is a kind of, we don't want political parties involved. Uh, I think it's a mistake. Uh, partly because the process is inherently political. There has to be a political challenge to the system, including, I think, there has to be a challenge at the level of uh, electoralism. We need to fight for eco-socialist politics in the electoral sphere and, you know, in every other sphere. And I think political parties, precisely because they're active on a range of issues, can bring people together and play a vital role in the movement. So I think we have to argue against that. And the last thing I want to say is that our experience in Ireland uh, is that using the term eco-socialist is very useful. Uh, it opens doors in the way that just using the old terminology about socialism doesn't. Uh, because it makes clear that you're taking the whole question of um, the whole the whole question of the ecology and the environment absolutely central. That you understand that this has to be crucial to any notion of uh, a, a socialist or sustainable future, and it cuts across a lot of the arguments from from, from the past. So uh, my my conclusion is um, that the left response to COP26 has to be uh, an eco-socialist response. Uh, uh, and I would uh, ask people here as well, if you're interested in this, you might be interested in the uh, Global Eco-Socialist Network, and I'll put a link to that in the chat. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jacob. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR this morning on 19th of November. That was John Molyneux, a talk at COP26, a left response. Stay with us. We're listening to Somewhere Deep by Baker Boy, and then we'll be back for more discussion and commentary. The ocean is rising somewhere deep. Somewhere deep. Somewhere deep. Somewhere deep. Somewhere deep. Sick and tired of the pain every day. People are hurt like you and me. Guru to me, we need to come together, together as one. The way war could be won in a world with no guns. If we keep it up, we'll end up having none. With my head up high and I'm a cousin. Wondering what was so fun. Living in the struggle, got my knees going numb. I fell to the ground, she picked me up, it was my mom. 
water from my tongue. Crack of the lightning, your future is frightening. The ocean is rising, somewhere deep, cheating up. Somewhere deep, cheating up. Somewhere deep, cheating up. Somewhere deep, cheating up. Thinking that a lean up or wound, you were calling what the murder of a tail like you want more. We can build a future where we will not pollute the air. Slowly heal like every year, Mother Nature's skin is clear. But they want minerals, thoughts of future minimum. Stealing nature's medicine, fingerprints of criminals. Making more than needed, money what they're seeking. How can they see clearly when it's money then they see it? Whispers getting louder, I can hear it in the wind. Warning us about the real dangers that we in And we should listen and make decisions legit The ocean is rising, some are deep Some are deep, hit it up Some are deep, hit it up Some are deep, hit it up Alan is cracking From the drilling and fracking And the mother of this crying She's crying from the drilling Please listen to the warning Can you hear the thunder And see the lightning The ocean is rising Some are deep cheating up 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 That was Baker Boy with Somewhere Deep. You're listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR um, in the studio with Leo and Sue. Um, we're back on to more um, news discussion um, here. And the next story we have is a report back um, that was featured in Greenleft um, about a report by the ACTU on insecure jobs. Um, Sue, do you want to introduce us to what the report covered? Yes. Now, a lot of people in um, Melbourne listening to this program would already know this because they're working multiple jobs. But the ACTU has just uh, um, produced a report uh, which basically found that a record number of people are now working more than one job with a quite a large increase in the number of people working three or more jobs. Um, and basically, last year, the government passed a new industrial relations bill, and part of that uh, included 
uh, allowing bosses to simply declare a worker casual. Uh, a worker could be a permanent worker and being declared casual. And what they found, what the ACT found is more than half the workforce is in insecure work, um, with a massive number of people, like a 10.4% increase since 2020, of people who are working three or more jobs. And so this is incredibly stressful uh, when you're trying to marry up the times of three or more jobs. It's even difficult marrying up the times of two jobs. Um, and this is, you know, there's no need for this because, you know, a lot of these workers might have worked in... Um, some of these workplaces for long periods of time. Um, sometimes, um, you know, employers actually deliberately have this model of keeping everybody in insecure work. Um, and um, something like 55% of the workers in insecure work are underneath the age of 35, with 53% being women. And it's really um, distressing for workers. You can't you can't plan anything. Um, you're called into work at a moment's notice. Some bosses will only guarantee you one day of work in a week, but you've got to keep um, keep uh, remain available to take that particular job. Um, and so this is a sort of life of workers these days, where workers are not in any kind of secure kind of work. Yeah, it's a very precarious um, situation to be in, as you mentioned, Sue, and the um, really sad thing is that um, this insecurity in employment is growing and without sort of idealising um, the past because a lot of those sort of employment um, uh, frameworks were centred around, you know, women obviously not working and exclusively focusing on the home, um, you know, a person could um, very much survive just off um, one full-time job, and that's increasingly becoming unlikely. And as you mentioned, those that are affected uh, most tend to be young workers, tend to be women, tend to be workers from migrant backgrounds. And um, as you mentioned as well, it's very difficult um, to have any sort of social life in that sort of aspect, having to remain available, um, especially during times like weekends, um, when in the end you might not actually... Um, get work anyway and um, I think it's um, a real indictment um, on one of the major issues um, facing Australian workers and that is um, this issue of casualisation and insecurity um, there is a lot of pressure from bosses for workers to be flexible and almost always available um, yet of course that flexibility isn't extended to workers um, as well um, it's all in one um, in one direction, um, and of course, um, anyone who does want uh, full-time, secure work, uh, permanent work, should be able to get that um, without having to rely on um, conversion clauses um, in EBAs, which often um, aren't fulfilled by bosses. Anyway, we had quite a um, sort of humorous if it wasn't so sad situational in the year where a number of um, workers at universities um, covered by NTEU agreements um, which supposedly have these casual conversion clauses were denied through template letters. Um, it was basically an email sent to these casual tutors 
you know, some were employed 10 years work teaching a particular unit, basically saying, sorry, you have been denied a permanent conversion for, and it was quite literally, quote, insert reason here. So um, I think casualization will be one of the major sort of issues for the next industrial um, relations campaign. And um, unfortunately, it's a problem affecting more and more young workers, especially. Um, anything else on this I, th- I think that's basically that's basically it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think this is a right which Australian workers had won. Hasn't most Australian workers had won? I'd say, but not all workers. Um, all of the great industrial battles of the 1930s and 1940s and so forth on the wharves and at the abattoirs and so forth were over the right to permanent employment and not just being picked up at the gate where the boss, you know, picked out the people they thought were the strongest workers and said, you can have a job today and then you all have to turn up at the gate again tomorrow. And that was certainly how the meatworks operated and the wharves operated at one time. And in a sense, we, you know, we're back to that situation again. And we, but we do, it's really pleasing to see a lot of unions fighting for, um, fighting for, permanent secure work and to have casuals converted to permanent jobs and um, some unions are actually winning some of those um, some of those disputes and, and winning permanent jobs. That's right. And um, just before we get into the activist calendar in a couple of minutes, um, we also have another interesting story um, mentioning before that sort of talk by John Molyneux on COP26. Um, the climate cost of war um, is an interesting aspect of this, um, especially the sheer amount um, of emissions that militaries are responsible for. And despite this, you know, the U.S. military, for example, being the number one um, single largest emitter in the world, um, uh, uh, military emissions um, through various loopholes aren't really being included in the um, emissions reductions targets agreed to at COP26. And I think it's a real indictment on this sort of intersectionality between um, imperialism and climate change. Um, I think we'll see, as, as we see more wars, as we see more interventions um, overseas by Western powers, uh, we will see more refugees. And I think that intersects very closely with the impact that the climate will have with... Um, Refugees, we'll see more climate refugees, and as the temperature grows, we'll see much more insecurity in the world, many more conflicts, and um, this is an interesting aspect of climate change. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I actually think there needs to be more discussion about this issue in the climate movement. I mean, obviously, um, we we need to do what the climate movement is campaigning on, which is to get rid of fossil fuel, which underwrites or underrides the entire capitalist economy. But the US military alone, even without the Israeli military, the Russian military, et cetera, et cetera, um, it would be res- responsible for a huge amount of emissions. And um, both the incredible waste of resources that goes into um, building and manufacturing all of these bombs and bombing planes and warships and all the rest of it um, and the fuel that um, they run on. But then also the actual war itself where, you know, if you look at something like the Iraq war where the US um, 
set these oil fields on fire, and these oil fields were on fire for months and perhaps even years. Um, the media stopped covering it at some point. So this is a massive trick in the COP26 conference that it continues with the practice of excluding military missions. Um, and this is just all of these tricks in these COP conferences to allow these um, fossil fuel producing nations to just get off scot-free from a lot of uh, climate commitments. Mm, yeah, the sheer number of loopholes, it really is a bit of a cop-out that we saw at COP26. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It is 7.56am. Um, Sue will now present our activist calendar, listing some of the upcoming um, activist events, rallies um, and forums. Great, thanks. Well, um, there's one uh, rally coming up tomorrow, which um, has been already advertised on 3CR, has been advertised frequently on 3CR, and that is a protest against the anti-vax far right. Um, It's tomorrow at 12 noon, and it will start at the eight-hour monument, which is on the corner of Victoria Street and Russell Street in the city, Um, and there will be um, speeches there followed by a march, Um, and I believe that's going to end at Lincoln Square, the march, but turn up at um, 12 noon at the eight-hour monument, which is diagonally opposite to Victorian Trades Hall. Um, Then on the following weekend, on Saturday the 27th of November, there will be a Green Left Performance Night, a night of cultural dissent. So this is a fundraiser for Green Left, both um, the Green Left newspaper as well as the Green Left website and the Green Left radio. Um, So please come along if you can. It will be one of the first, um, you know, left events um, with, Com- uh, comedy and, and poetry. We've got a great lineup of, of um, comedians and poets. Nikki Barry, Hellchild, Artie Vincent, Clinton Gin, Kritika Harrat, uh, James Warren, Eddie Berger, Rowan White, and Hamish Danica Brown. Or Dank, sorry, Hamish Danks Brown. Um, and this will be Saturday week, the 27th of November. Um, 7pm with doors opening at 6pm at the Maritime Union Hall, 46 uh, to 54 Island Street, West Melbourne. Um, the tickets will be uh, $10 concession, $20 wage and $30 solidarity and there'll be um, a meal and a bar available with vegans being catered for. So you can... Um, Contact us at the Resistance Centre. You can check out the details on Facebook, um, on the Green Left site, um, and um, hopefully book a ticket. Um, there will be some other events coming up uh, in uh, that same weekend. The, same, the following day, um, there will be um, on the Sunday, the 28th of November, there's a run for Palestine at 10am at the Tantrack Racetrack um, in Linlithgow Avenue. I always find that hard to pronounce. Um, King's Domain. Um, If you just look up Run for Palestine on the web, you'll get all of the details. And also Food Not Bombs is turning 25 and they've got a celebration picnic at 2pm until sunset in the Enbrough Gardens. 
near the corner of St George's Road and Reed Street, North Fitzroy. Uh, another important event on Monday the 29th of November and Tuesday the 30th of November is the Migrant Workers Conference, uh, Reshaping Australia's Migration System for Workers. Now, if you just look up Migrant Workers Conference, you'll be able to get all of the details and how to register. It will be an online conference, so it'll be in the evening on those two days, so it's 7.30pm on each of those um, days. So, um, But we'll be making more announcements about that in on Greenleft Radio next week. And then on Saturday, the 4th of December to Saturday, the 11th of December, there's the Radical Book Sale in the Resistance Bookshop. 25% off all stock, um, a range of new titles and second-hand titles. And the Resistance Centre Bookshop is located at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city opposite RMIT. And the last event uh, that I want to advertise is on, on Human Rights Day, Friday the 10th of December. And this is um, a refugee rally organised by Refugee Action Collective. Um, and this will be is campaigning for the right to permanent visas and for all Medigetvac refugees to be released from detention and receive um, permanent visas, um, amongst other things. Um, there are a range of other demands, but it's a very important rally for us to all support. Thanks, Sue. That was uh, this week's um, activist calendar. If you missed any of those um, and would like to come along, you can check out the full listing at greenleft.org.au forward slash events, uh, where you can also um, sign up to receive our weekly um, email listing of all these activist um, events. Now, do stick around with us here on Greenleft Radio on 3CR coming up. Uh, shortly, we will be interviewing Tom Tanuki from Yelling at Racist Dogs about the latest developments in the Melbourne Freedom Movement um, and his analysis of the situation. But before then, um, we will be listening to Breathe In and Breathe Out by Thelma Plum. Stick around. See you shortly.
That was Thelma Plum, Breathe In, Breathe Out. You're listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR. Uh, we're hoping to speak to Tom Tanuki soon from Yelling at Racist Dogs, interviewing him about the latest developments about the Melbourne Freedom Movement and what it represents. Um, until then, uh, we're going to be playing some community service announcements. So stay tuned and um, we'll see you shortly. Stop the Far Right. Protest on Saturday, November the 20th at 12pm at the 8-hour monument. Join the campaign against racism and fascism in Melbourne to protest the far right trying to march in our streets as part of a national day of anti-fascist action. Stand for social solidarity and let everyone know that Melbourne is an anti-fascist town. This is organised as a COVID-19 safe event. All participants are requested to come fully vaccinated and wearing masks. Stop the far-right protest, Saturday, November the 20th at 12pm at the 8-hour monument, Melbourne. more information, go to www.calf.melbourne. A 3CR supporter. 
from every corner of the land. Womankind, arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Well, if you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, it's sure know where you are. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. We'll check out the happy vibe. They're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to 3CR, clap your hands. What? Who the hell is that? The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, Declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs. And students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio a 5 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You are listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR. It is 11.12 a.m. on Friday, the 19th of November. Welcome back. Um, unfortunately, Tom Snooki has not yet joined us. We're not sure if it's due to um, technical problems or otherwise. Um, but I thought we might start, Sue, in discussing this whole sort of phenomenon of the Melbourne Freedom Day movement um, and what it represents. And hopefully if Tom does manage to join us later, um, get some additional insight from him. Um, it looks like the situation has quite sort of rapidly changed um, in the past few weeks as we have emerged out of lockdown with sort of um, the bulk of the anger directed towards this latest um, pandemic management bill that's been put forward by the government um, in Parliament. Um, what's your analysis of the whole situation been, Sue? How have you perceived it? Well, I think, I must admit, I don't like, and I, I know the organisers are calling them freedom protests, but I don't like using that word freedom because they actually are not talking about freedom for people. <laughs> they're, they're actually um, more talking um, about themselves rather than freedom for people to be um, to not be exploited. Um, but I think one of the things which I've noticed with these protests is I think the organisers of the protest now the people attending the protests are um, quite diverse and the rallies have become much more diverse since the lockdown ended and they've stopped being punch-ups with the cops. Um, so more people have been prepared to come to them. But I think the organisers of the protests are cynically manipulating people who might have all sorts of different fears or be sucked in by conspiracy theories or whatever, I think a lot of the people attending are motivated motivated by opposing the vaccine mandate uh, more so than by the pandemic bill. And so I think what they're trying to do is, the organisers are trying to do, is take advantage of each little thing to try and keep this movement going. And they are trying to nurture a right-wing movement, even if not every person who's attending these rallies considers themselves right-wing or far-right. And the far-right are absolutely in there. I mean, The Age reported yesterday that a far-right protester had been charged with... um, you know, calling on people to bring firearms to the protest, to put a bullet in um, Daniel Andrews' head. So the absolute stepping up of violence, including the threat of lynchings by um, trailing around these gallows, mock gallows with uh, nooses and carrying out a mock hanging of the Premier. Now, I'm no not a fan of the... Um, Premier or the Labor government. I mean, I've got many criticisms, but this is, um, there's, there are no demands in this movement for 
people's rights to be free of exploitation. It's it's on a very libertarian, individualistic basis. And in fact, the protests are explicitly against um, any idea of the government having any kind of um, powers to... Um, carry out health directions for the public in the event of a, an infectious disease. Now, I've got some criticisms of the pandemic bill, um, but there is a need to be able to operate um, and um, carry out certain health restrictions. There might be debate over what sorts of restrictions, but there is a need to be able to issue public health orders when you have an infectious disease rolling around. But also... There's an intersection now between the Clive Palmer party um, and the um, and this movement, and in fact, Clive Palmer hasn't even hidden it. I mean, his modus operandi is the same as the last elections. He just wants a, a right wing movement um, roiling away throughout Australia so that he can get the Liberal Party elected on the back of a, right, a very right-wing movement um, so that the government will be beholden to him to issue all of his permits for new coal mines. And that's really what Clive Palmer's purpose is in the whole affair. And then in that, you've also got actual Nazis, and Nazis are linked to an organisation which is linked to the Clive Palmer Party as well. That's been re revealed as a result of the Age and Sydney Morning Herald and White Rose Society investigation of the far right in this movement. So it's we have to understand that while there might be ordinary people coming along who might have got drawn in on this or that basis, that's not really... Um, the purpose of the organiser, the purpose of the organisers is to try and build, deliberately build a far right movement, a right wing movement in Australia. Not necessarily all of them are Nazis. It's probably more of a Trump kind of movement that the organisers are trying to build. And within that, the Nazis are agitating on a more explicitly Nazi kind of access. Anyway, that's my take. It would be good to get your take. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree with your um, characterisation of the protests. And I think as sort of leftists, as progressives, there's two main things we need to focus on. And one is... Um, firstly, understanding the protests and to figuring out how to um, best respond to them. Um, on the one hand, um, I would agree with your um, with your description of the sort of composition of everyone that's there. I think the protests do have a right wing character, and it is quite noticeable. That doesn't mean, of course, that every single person there is right wing. I think the majority of people. Um, it, it is a really big sort of. Um, melange of everyone. Um, there's a lot of apolitical people, people that haven't really taken any political action before that have been sort of radicalised by this pandemic, um, a lot of sort of traditional conservatives, um, right-wing populists that do fall under that sort of Trump category, and of course um, a smaller section of neo-Nazis. And I think we have to be very careful and very, very nuanced here because um, I think there's a tendency um, among some to inflate um, the presence that neo-Nazis and other far-right extremists have in this movement, which I think is counterproductive in a way um, because one, it um, it 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 creates um, it creates fear and it creates um, it creates a situation that does not really 
um, exist. And um, without without actually looking at this nuance and the complexity behind it, it's very easy to brand everyone who attends these rallies as a far-right extremist. Um, but we have to look very deeper at it. And in my view, um, you know, there's, there's some very sort of legitimate concerns that people have had. I think the way you described it, Sue, the way... Um, this movement has continued to find new things to rally about while we were in lockdown. Um, it was, of course, the lockdown restrictions, then the vaccine mandates um, came to the front, and now um, the pandemic management bill is the focus of these protesters. Um, they they are trying to find an organic movement and um, keep it going. And to an extent, um, this has sort of somewhat died down, at least the intensity of it, um, now that we are out of lockdown, of course, our vax rates are very high. These are, you know, we shouldn't figure these are the a minority of people in our society. At the same time, um, there is sort of renewed anger, and I think there is a legitimate base for this. I think we as the left should recognize this. I think, um, you know, lockdown restrictions were very, very um, difficult for many in the community. Um, you know, Daniel Andrews and his government has um, tried to police its way police itself out, out of this pandemic, especially during that sort of COVID zero um, elimination stage. Um, it was quite an authoritarian response and one that was predicated on punitive measures. Um, that being said, how we respond, I think, is the next important step. And I'd be curious to see what um, you have to say on this, Sue. But for me, I think it's important that we do oppose this, that we quite explicitly say um, that we are against um, the far right and um, really point out the connections that the far right have to these protests and the way they are instigating them. Um, but also, um, I think it's important not to be sucked into culture wars. And I think that's the sort of main point of analysis and commentary that I have. I think if we, um, if we allow ourselves to be too drawn into sort of moralistic, um, smart politics about, you know, deriding these people, um, in culture war terms, um, into, you know, labeling them as traitors and, you know, as much as, as deplorable as these gallows are, um, focusing on these sort of, I guess, auxiliary issues rather than the pandemic bill itself, rather than, you know, the presence of the far right, looking at the theatrics of it. Um, if we do us allow ourselves to get sucked into these culture wars where, um, you know, the right wing is the only one that's sort of talking about these issues of, I guess, freedom, civil liberties, um, and the left seems sort of obsessed with um, constant sort of restrictions, I think we have to take a step back, have some nuance, and be able to go beyond this, see the hurt in the community and um, without causing further social division. But, yeah, what is your sort of take on, Sue? How, how should we respond to these movements as, as a left movement? Well, firstly, I think one thing which is really noticeable about this um so-called freedom movement, and I think it is so-called mm. because it's actually not interested in actual freedom. It's actually interested in much more a dictatorial approach, in, in my belief, um, is that what is evident is there is, amongst the organisers of the protests, there is zero sympathy for people who've lost family as a result of COVID. And I know I live in the northern suburbs, and... The COVID has ripped through so many families. So many people have lost people to COVID. Um, it's just incredible. And there's zero sympathy for any of those people. There's zero sympathy for people who've been forced to isolate without any pay from their employers. Um, 
there's no acknowledgement of the seriousness of COVID and there's no recognition of the pressure on health workers in dealing with this crisis. So, and, and, but it's also just no, it's a totally individualistic approach, which is great for capitalism. They want things to be individualistic in terms of their approach. And they're not even really organising around our rights going into the future because there are some dangerous issues coming from various politicians of saying that in the future, individuals will have to pay for their own uh, COVID tests. Like, this is unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, some employers are going for the vaccine because they don't want to pay for the rapid antigen tests. I'm aware of some, a printing company in Sydney along those lines. And, the, and I think there are some... Um, the government is... Or some of the governments are starting to toy with the idea of putting all the responsibility for catching COVID onto the individual. So rather than a public health response... Um, of saying, oh, well, um, you stuffed up because you either didn't get the vaccine or, or you um, did something wrong, therefore it's your fault that you caught COVID, so you have to pay for, you know, you, you're liable for everything. When maybe someone might not have got the vaccine because they got sucked in by someone who gave them false information about the vaccine or, or whatever, Um it's it, there are some dangerous things coming up which we're going to have to fight around. But this movement is not interested in that. They're interested in just a right-wing individualistic movement. They're not interested in the rights of workers and so forth. And in some ways, I actually think um, one of the ways of countering this, I mean, yes, I definitely think people need to attend the protests that's being organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism tomorrow um, at 12 noon at the eight-hour monument. But I also think one of the ways of fighting back is actually organising around the concerns and needs of every everyday working-class people. And that's why I think it was good that we started this morning talking about some of the... Um, industrial organising being done by unions. There obviously needs to be uh, a lot more done, um, especially of, you know, casual workers in areas that are not unionised or currently not organised. Um, but you actually have to start to focus people on coming together to take action around um, concrete issues. That prob is probably the best way that we can start to get people focused on what we need, um, because really this right-wing movement that's cropped up, it's about amorphous titles like freedom, um, but actually it's not really about freedom at all because they're not taking up any concrete issues and um, they're really just, you know, popping up with all of these things to, you know, to... Um, keep their right-wing individualistic movement going, which is absolutely in the interests of the bosses and the capitalists. Mm, yeah, it's a very interesting situation. And, you know, the definition of freedom itself is one that's sort of been tested throughout this pandemic. And I think, well, you know, there is obviously a place for individual freedoms and we shouldn't minimise, you know, the importance of civil liberties, you know, which which are in many aspects undermined by this pandemic management bill. Um, figuring out the best way to counter these protests um, is 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 critical for the left, um, and one of the main ways um, in which we're going to do that, as you say, Sue, is organising around these um, concrete issues. Because 
you know, constant moralizing um, is not necessarily going to do it. A lot of these people are already radicalized. Um, you know, there aren't any real, you know, rational arguments against the vaccine. So we can't really use rational arguments and moralistic arguments in this way. Um, we're going to make sure that more people aren't drawn to this. And when people take solidaristic collectivist action um, in support of their fellow workers, that's how we see real action and um, better social cohesion. Um, Sue, any final words from you I before think, we wrap up? I think one other thing which is worth pointing out is that amongst the organisers of this protest, while they might be talking about freedom and blah, 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 there, it is blah, 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 in the same way that the COP26 conference was blah, 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 because they actually are not interested in the civil liberties of everybody. They're only interested in um, individual rights. They're not interested in the collective right to protest, collective human rights. They're not... Um, they're not interested in issues of discrimination. So it's that's why um, I think um, the reference to them being freedom protests, the freedom should absolutely be in double, triple, quadruple, inverted commas, because they're, they're not interested in the rights of to protest of any of the rest of us, but only themselves. So um, this is absolutely a pro, pro-bosses protest movement. Well said, Sue. Um, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us on Green Left Radio on 3CR. Um, have a good rest of Friday and a good weekend. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.